welcome to this episode of Diabetes Dialogue. I'm Natalie Wisher, the CEO of the National Association of Diabetes Centres. Diabetes Dialogue is a podcast for healthcare professionals across Australia. We have presentations from leading experts worldwide, and it's our hope that this podcast series inspires you to provide optimal care for people living with diabetes. And now, let's welcome today's topic and expert speaker. Melanie Regan will be presenting on cancer and diabetes. Melanie Regan is a specialist cancer nurse with postgraduate qualifications in cancer care and a master's of nursing. Melanie's 30 years of nursing include working in metro and regional areas as a clinician, project manager and researcher. Some of the most enjoyable parts of her job are getting to know patients, advocating for best care and contributing to hope. Over to you, Melanie. So my name is Melanie Regan. I My job title is Special Projects Manager and I work for an organisation called Pancare Foundation. Within that foundation, I'm within a team that's called Pan Support and we aim to support people who've been diagnosed with an upper gastrointestinal cancer. So today I've been invited and thank you for inviting me, Raina, to talk about cancer and diabetes and I've called this a complex relationship and I think it will become evident as I talk as to why it's a complex relationship and hopefully I can provide some information for you to think about in your practice and um, be able to have you take something away. I've just got a slide here with some of our patients that we've helped look after before. And it just reminds me and all of us as to what we're actually trying to achieve in our everyday work. Together, collectively affect millions of Australians. Each illness on their own carries significant morbidity and significant mortality, as you all know. Cancer and diabetes share a complex relationship and they certainly have some shared risk factors, which we'll talk about a little bit, and also shared inequities, which we'll talk about a little bit. What we'll discuss uh, a little bit further is how each condition can lead to the other. Many people have both. So many people that I see as a cancer nurse have diabetes and many people that you see as diabetic practitioners will have cancer. And then I'm going to focus just on cancer of the pancreas. It has a natural um, relationship, obviously, with diabetes, and it's one of the types of cancer that at Pancare we provide care for people who have it. So I'm just going to start with a little bit of general um, broad information about cancer in Australia that you may not be as aware of. Um, cancer in this country is responsible for about 18% of the burden of ill health. Uh, yet, unfortunately, only approximately 9% of health spending is spent on cancer. Currently, at the moment, there's more than a million people who currently are living with cancer or they've had cancer in the past. About 150,000 people are diagnosed newly every year and about 50,000 people will unfortunately die from cancer. 
At this point, we can say that about 70% of all people who are diagnosed across the board will live five years after their diagnosis. And what that makes cancer is a chronic condition. So in the same way that a lot of illnesses like heart disease and diabetes are considered chronic conditions, cancer is also, with this classification, considered a chronic condition. Almost half of cancers that people get can be attributed to lifestyle factors, and this is certainly where there's a synergy with diabetes. Incidence is increasing. That could be for a variety of reasons. Luckily, mortality is decreasing, but obviously we want to impact and further both of those, reduce incidence and, and continue to decrease mortality. I've got a slide here that just explains a little bit about some of the inequities in cancer. And these are going to actually sound very familiar to you all in terms of your own practice with diabetes. So unfortunately, Indigenous Australians are far more likely to get cancer than a non-Indigenous Australian. If they get cancer, then they're far more likely to die from it, even compared to a non-Indigenous person who has cancer. Increasing remoteness is linked with higher incidence and higher mortality. So the further you get away from a metropolitan centre, the more likely you are to get cancer. And then if you get it, the more likely you are to die. Lower socioeconomic status is also linked with higher incidence and higher mortality. Of all of the cancers, 30% of them are classified as rare or classified as less common. But these rare and less common cancers account for 42% of all deaths. And I make this point because this is where the upper gastrointestinal cancers that Pancare look after, that's where our cancers are unfortunately located. I've just got a slide here. This is one of our slides that we present at, at um, Pancare. Upper gastrointestinal cancers that we cover include cancer of the esophagus, the stomach, liver, biliary, which is both the bile ducts as well as gallbladder cancer, and they're two different types, and cancer of the pancreas. Collectively, these are the deadliest group of cancers in Australia today. Unfortunately, survival rates in these particular cancers are as bad, if not worse, than in the 70s most cancers have made significant improvements in terms of cancer outcomes. That's just not at all the case with these, this group of cancers. Outcomes in marginalised communities, like we've, I've just mentioned, are six times worse in these types of cancers. People with an upper gastrointestinal cancer will have higher hospitalisation rates. That's due to the complexity and severity of both the cancers as well as the treatments which are extremely complex and severe. So these people are more likely to end up in hospital. Quality of life, as you can imagine, is devastating for patients and families. Treatments and side effects are both complicated and severe. And as is not surprising, patients with these types of cancers as well as their carers have frequent unmet care needs. I've got a slide here that just gives a visual representation of survival statistics of the different kinds of cancers, just so you can get a feel for where things sit. 
So on the left-hand side are the lowest surviving cancers and mesothelioma is at the far left here as having the lowest survival rate of every kind of cancer. And then as you go across, survival rates increase significantly and get a lot better. And at the far right of this slide, you'll see testicular cancer where we have a, um, a survival rate in the high 90s, which is absolutely wonderful and where we obviously like everybody to sit. Um, the top red dotted line is that average that I spoke about before where we say across the board 70% of people will be surviving at the five-year rate. What that means though is that there's a lot of cancers that are below that as well as the cancers that are above that. The second red line is, is the 50% rate. The Australian government classifies 50% as being a threshold. If your survival is less than that, the cancer is considered to be a low survival cancer. And as you can see over on the left-hand side, the dark purple cancers of pancreas, gastric, hepatic, uh, gallbladder, biliary liver, esophagus and stomach, our cancers for, for pancare are all very much unfortunately in that section as being low survival cancers. I've just got another slide that doesn't look like it's come through as pretty as it does in my slides, but anyway, the numbers are there. And it just gives another way of looking at this information. The top line are our five cancers, and you can see the survival rates range from 11% for cancer of the pancreas. This is at five years, and then across to stomach, which is our highest at 30%. And then on the bottom are the much more common types of cancers. Prostate, for example, which is a really common type of cancer, has a 95% survival rate. And then there's breast at 91, bowel at 70, ovarian, that's meant to say 46%, and brain cancer at 22%. So it just gives you an idea of the different um, outlooks for different kinds of cancers. What you have really does determine the future. So I'll just move on and just do a little very brief snapshot of diabetes. This is certainly your area of expertise, not mine, but it was really interesting for me to pull together a couple of slides about this and um, use them as a bit of a point of comparison and as a bit of a reminder. So diabetes in Australia, overall it's responsible for 2.6% of the burden of ill health and the government will spends about 2.2% of its budget upon diabetes. So much like some of the other um, areas of health, you, it spends less than it needs to on this particular illness. In Australia at the moment, there's over 1.3 million people living with diabetes. And when I say diabetes, that's all types. Approximately 50,000 people are diagnosed each year. This I think does not include gestational diabetes. Diabetes contributes directly to about 5,500 deaths each year, but many more when it's um, in terms of contributing to deaths and not, not directly causing, and that's up to about 20,000 people a year will die with diabetes as a contributing factor. Much like cancer, diabetes has an extremely significant contribution by lifestyle factors in terms of causing the problem. 
it was really interesting for me to see that read about within the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that the incidence is decreasing. It was different to my expectation. And diabetes has very similar inequities in terms of cancer, the same really. Diabetes is greatly overrepresented in Indigenous Australians, overrepresented in people who live in remote areas, and also overrepresented in lower socioeconomic groups. Just on a slide here, purely just this is the kind of thing that interests me. It may not interest you at all, but just a little bit of a comparison with the most common burden of disease and spend and compared to budget spending in the government. So cancer is um, at the top there, but then interestingly, musculoskeletal is the next most common problem in terms of burden of disease in Australia. And in actual fact, a person presenting to their GP with lower back pain is the most common uh, presentation to a GP with a problem uh, for people in Australia. Then we've got cardiovascular disease and mental health and substance abuse. And I've just put the diabetes numbers in there just because it's relevant to what we're talking about today. And then when we look at spending, musculoskeletal actually spending on this particular problem is by far the biggest spending of all of our um, country's budget on health, um, which is quite interesting, really, given how preventable a problem it is, then cardiovascular, then cancer, and then mental health and substance abuse. So getting to our two specialties and bringing them together, cancer and diabetes, a complex relationship. So diabetes and cancer are both heterogeneous, multifactorial, severe and chronic diseases. A whole range of things contribute to them and a whole range of problems come out of them. There's nothing simple about either of these problems and bring them together, it's, there's, it is even more complicated. Both of our illnesses share common risk factors, much higher um, in populations of people who smoke, uh, are obese, have an unhealthy diet and a lack of exercise. Obviously, this is common across all of the chronic illnesses and certainly common to both of our uh, areas of specialty. Epidemiological evidence tells us that the risk of developing cancer is increased in people who have diabetes. And there are some notable types of cancer that are in this group. Um, first one being cancer of the pancreas, which we'll talk about in a moment liver cancer, colorectal cancer, and ovarian cancer. So of the people that you all care for, people who have diabetes, they have an increased risk of getting cancer than a person who doesn't have diabetes. And then the risk of mortality in these populations is increased. So if you've got just cancer or just diabetes, you have your mortality risk. But if you have both of these illnesses, the risk of dying is higher again. So when we talk about people with diabetes having a higher risk of cancer, and in fact, you know, there are good statistics to show that you can, that you uh, statistically are more likely to develop cancer, the direct causality has not been convincingly established. So we don't know exactly why. 
And some of the reasons for that is that there are so many comorbidities that are common to all chronic illnesses, and it makes it difficult to isolate the direct link. So when you include smoking, obesity, poor eating and lack of exercise into the mix that's fairly common between our two groups, saying exactly what the problem is, exactly what causes um, diabetes to contribute to cancer, it's very difficult to say just what that is and the actual pathology that links them, people haven't isolated. And certainly we need to do a lot more research to understand this connection. But there are several theories that are out there at the moment, and it's probably not a surprise to you, but hyperinsulinemia, obesity, hyperglycemia, increased growth factors and hormone levels, and inflammation are considered factors. And these, all of these particular problems are becoming much more widely understood, um, more often talked about, and people are becoming more aware of the need to mitigate some of these issues in terms of reducing your risk of getting further disease. So on the other, if we flip the coin again, cancer treatment, what we do for people once they're diagnosed with cancer can directly cause diabetes. So we've talked about diabetes causing cancer. Cancer can cause diabetes. Um, it can contribute to the development of diabetes in the first place, but then it can also exacerbate diabetes that already exists in a patient quite significantly. Two of the factors that are very well-known causes and are very common are the medications of steroids and anti-androgen drugs. These are the drugs that are very commonly used in the gender-specific cancers like prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. So these medications, and as you all well know, steroids are well-known causes of diabetes, and these medications are prolifically used within cancer care. Targeted anti-cancer drugs can also interfere with glucose metabolism, and this group of drugs are the newer, exciting, newsworthy drugs that you may hear about from time to time, um, the super drugs that certain people are taking and getting amazing results. These can interfere with glucose metabolism. We don't really understand why, but it's all to do with our immune systems and um, making our immune systems switch on to a higher level than normal and this interferes with glucose metabolism and can either cause or exacerbate diabetes. And then another point I've put in here, which is just a by-the-by interesting point, is that the medication metformin is considered to have anti-cancer properties. So it's mainly just to further promote the understanding that our two illnesses that we both deal with are very complicated. I've got a slide in here about um, type 3 C diabetes, pancreatogenic diabetes, um, not something that's very widely um, understood and clinically different to other types of cancers, but this is one part of one of our take-home messages today. So pancreatogenic diabetes, this is a, a specific subtype of type 3 diabetes, and this results from alternative pancreas pathology that ultimately leads to endocrine dysfunction. So the kinds of illnesses that lead to this kind of diabetes that you would see are people with chronic pancreatitis. And this is not necessarily 
um, the group of people who is uh, alcohol-induced. This is people who have, unfortunately, a hereditary problem um, where they just, you know, the, the younger, generally healthy people who just get recurrent pancreatitis and so they've got chronic inflammation in their pancreas. Uh, people with cystic fibrosis, hemochromatosis, people who've had surgery on their pancreas for various reasons, and my patients, people with cancer of the pancreas. These illnesses can lead to this kind of diabetes. Clinically, so what you would see in your practice every day, you can't really differentiate between um, a person standing in front of you, whether this is the cause or not the cause. But if an underlying cancer is the cause of this kind of diabetes, then the chance for early detection is a significant thing that we'd like to try and contribute to and, and assist. So the things I'd like you to look out for, if you think about your patient cohort and think about your practice, is the older patient, they have a lower BMI. They're not your standard patient. They're older, they have a lower BMI, better HbA1c results, better renal function than you're normally used to seeing. They have insulin dependence and they're newer patients. So if you think about these things, these aren't your typical patients at all. These are ones that are a bit different and maybe a little bit puzzling. They might make you think, gosh, you're, you've had some bad luck or um, I wonder how you've ended up here because you don't seem like my average patient. So think about these patients when you come across them. They're new. They're not your long-term patients. And think, could something be going on here that they need to go back and be investigated for? The opportunity for early diagnosis is so significant for people with cancer in terms of their long-term survival from this type of cancer, which is a very, very bad one. So I've just got an interesting slide here that comes from the um, National Cancer Institute, which is an American organisation. About one in 100 people with new onset diabetes are going to go on and develop pancreatic cancer within the next three years. So in a very short period of time from when you see them, that's where they're going to end up. So a small sort of number on that point of view. So it's not going to be everybody you see every day. But then if we turn this around, the people I see, the people who've been diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas, a quarter of them were recently diagnosed with diabetes. So the relationship is very significant and the link is very um, profound. So going on to pancreatic cancer, which is the main type of cancer I was going to use as our example today, this is a common intersection in specialities uh, for obvious reasons the disease being in the pancreas. So diabetes itself can precede pancreatic cancer. It can contribute to pancreatic cancer and it can also muddy the diagnosis of a pancreatic cancer. Conversely, diabetes can be caused directly by pancreatic cancer and or the surgery that a person might have for their pancreatic cancer and then also be caused indirectly by the treatments that they receive for their pancreatic cancer. So signs and symptoms of this particular kind of cancer include jaundice, uh, so they'll come, they'll have very yellow skin, dark urine, something called steatorrhea, which is uh, bulky, very pale, fatty, oily stools. So these are significant changes to a person. A loss of appetite, 
nausea, indigestion, new onset diabetes. As we said in the slide before, one in four of these patients have recently been diagnosed with diabetes, weight loss, fatigue and pain. Treatments for pancreatic cancer. There's four main types. The first one is surgery. Now, only 15 to 20% of people who are diagnosed with um, cancer of the pancreas are eligible for surgery. Most of the time, the diagnosis is uh, too advanced. The cancer is too advanced to be eligible, but up to 20% of people will have surgery. The surgery is enormous, absolutely enormous. It's very complicated, has a very long recovery. They can be impacted for up to a year directly from the surgery and their digestion is forever impacted. Chemotherapy for this kind of cancer is the most common treatment. Very intensive, very strong side effects and almost universally will require the use of steroids. Radiotherapy and immunotherapy both have significant side effects and also require the use of steroids. So I've just got some slides now of some pictures of these particular organs and just some interesting pictures of the surgery that's, that can happen with these, um, this particular cancer. And you can start to think about the impact it then has on digestion and diabetes. So the top picture here is just the main organs of the digestive system. You can see the esophagus leading to the stomach, the overlaying of the liver, inside the liver and underneath the liver there are the common the bile ducts and the gallbladder meeting into the common bile duct which is going then through the pancreas and outletting into the duodenum which is the first part of the small intestine the pancreas reaching up underneath the liver there and at the back of the pancreas is the spleen so the next picture at the bottom of this slide is just a close-up picture of the pancreas. And one thing to make note of here is the extensive and very close relationship of the blood vessels. The aorta is right in the middle of that, the portal vein, hepatic artery, splenic artery, splenic, um, splenic vein. These blood vessels are part of what makes the surgery so very complicated and very commonly a reason why a person cannot have surgery for this kind of cancer. If a tumour is wrapped around some of these blood vessels, which is extremely common, the surgery is just too dangerous to perform. This is a slide that just has a visual representation of what's called a Whipple procedure or what your patients would commonly say, I had a Whipple's done. And this is the most common kind of surgery if your patient is, is having this cancer that they will have had done. So you can see at the top picture, there's a tumour in the part of the pancreas called the head of the pancreas. And then if the tumour is only in that spot, this is the kind of surgery you will have. The next picture shows what the surgeon will cut out. The entire gallbladder, the common bile duct, the head of the pancreas and the entire duodenum are removed in this surgery. And with the previous picture, seeing all of the blood vessels, you can see just how complicated and why it would take just so long to do this surgery. And then the third picture here is what reconstruction looks like afterwards, which is also part of why it takes so long. A section of small bowel is brought up and reattached to the remaining pancreas so that 
digestive enzymes can enter into the small intestine and the remaining bile ducts are also attached to that section of small intestine so that the, um, the bile can also enter into the digestive system and then the stomach too complex to bring back up into joining where it was before has to be joined into the small intestine further down. Next slide is just some pictures of a total pancreatectomy. This is where this, the tumour is either in the middle or the main body of the pancreas, not just the head or not just the tail. And there may also be another tumour in the tail. The entire pancreas must be um, removed. This surgery takes, again, the whole gallbladder, the common bile duct, the whole pancreas, the spleen is also removed, as well as the duodenum, that first part of the stomach. As you can imagine, a person whose pancreas has been removed, they're instantly a patient of yours. They will automatically, in their recovery, start from scratch with, di with unstable diabetes in the intensive care unit. Reconstruction, again, has to bring part of the small bowel up, drag it up to attach to those um, bile ducts and the stomach again attached to a part further down. And then the other kind of surgery people can have is a distal pancreatectomy where there's only cancer in the tail at the end of the tail of the pancreas and they'll remove that half and then they'll also remove the spleen. So that's another part of the complexity of these surgeries is the spleen is often removed and these people will have lifelong complications of their immune system not working properly. Again, reconstruction needs to take place and everything needs to be reattached. So this slide here is, is one of, I'm getting towards the end now actually, one of my last slides, but this talks about the common problems that people with this kind of cancer will have and the common solutions that are going to be advised to these people. And as I talk through them, I want you to start to think about a person with diabetes having these problems and how it makes your practice as people who are helping them with their diabetes so much more complicated and there's just so much more for you to think about. So I'll go through the common side effects on the left-hand side. So malabsorption is almost universal. The pancreas itself, apart from producing insulin, produces digestive enzymes. And without those enzymes or without enough of those enzymes, people cannot absorb their food. Food will go into their body and pass through a lot quicker than normal. And the nutrients that they would normally absorb from that food um, just doesn't happen as much as it, as it um, would ordinarily. So malabsorption is almost universal. Loss of appetite is extremely common, diarrhea related also to the malabsorption and just the changes in the bile um, being produced as well as the enzymes. Food passes very quickly for people, uh, creating diarrhea. As you can imagine, this impacts digestion, but it also impacts quality of life enormously. Very hard for these people to leave the house even, uh, plan anything, and their entire um, quality of life is just significantly impacted. Nausea is extremely common. 
weight loss, pain, pain from the cancer. Cancer of the pancreas will, will very commonly cause very severe back pain related to squashing on the nerves that are around there. And fatigue, fatigue for cancer of the pancreas, fatigue for any kind of cancer. This is the number one symptom side effect from having cancer and having cancer treatment across the board. People with cancer are fatigued. So on the right hand side, these are the kinds of advice that your patients, when they're in a hospital, whether they're in the community, wherever they are, this is what they're being taught and this is what they're being told. And I want you to have a think about how that impacts on you. People are diagnosed, people are prescribed enzyme replacement therapy. Common, the most common drug, almost entirely the only drug in Australia is called Creon. So this gives them enzymes that replace the ones they're not getting themselves. They're not quite as good as the ones we create produce ourselves and they've got a very short lifespan. They'll only last for about 15 minutes and dosage is really, really tricky. So getting this right is very difficult and sometimes we don't get it right altogether. So malabsorption can continue to be a very difficult problem for people in the long term. Almost universally, people with cancer and particularly this kind of cancer are going to be told to eat smaller meals much more often. They just cannot cope with the traditional breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, it's too much food. It's, they don't have the appetite for it. They no longer have a complete stomach, possibly. Their digestive system doesn't work in the way it used to before. Absolutely never again are these people going to eat three meals a day. They're going to eat much more often, much less, and it makes it much harder to get everything they need into their diet. Universally, dietitians, specialist dietitians, generalist dietitians, people in hospital, their surgeons, their nurses, their, their cancer specialists are going to tell them to eat a high energy and high protein diet. So this is really different to a diabetic diet. If you've already had diabetes, you're going to be advised to stop doing everything you've done for years and years and years and now eat very differently. That takes a big adjustment. If you've suddenly developed diabetes, you're going to be advised to eat in a way that makes no sense to you because you thought people with diabetes needs to eat in a different way. These people are told to eat things with a lot of calories and a lot of protein, and it's really different to normal. They're also encouraged to eat at sporadic random times of the day. So what, you know, good diabetic control needs is regular eating, um, regular use of their energy. This is completely different. If you're hungry at 10 o'clock at night, I will advise you to eat what you can at 10 o'clock at night. And if you can't eat at a different time, I'll say, well, eat what you can when you can. So you can see how tricky their diabetes management is going to be from this kind of advice. Our patients have multiple medications. There's so many different side effects from the uh, treatments that they need a lot of different medications then the medications create different side effects and they need another medication. And all of this changes the entire metabolic function of their body and nothing is working the same as it was beforehand. 
affects people because they're so fatigued. They're resting all the time. They're encouraged to do activity. The evidence base is is saying that they need to do activity, but it's really hard for them to do activity. And the end result of all of this, as you can all imagine, is unstable blood sugar levels and a really great complexity in terms of your interaction with these people. Nothing like what it is ordinarily. So a conclusion slide here, and these are some points that I'd like you to all have a think about with what I've talked about and explained and think about the people that you see each day and how it might impact on the way you interact with these people. And it's going to take a change in the way that you think to compare to your other ordinary patients. First of all, I'd like you to look out for the newly diagnosed diabetic patient and ask what could be causing this. Think about how easy it is to see that diabetes can be greatly impacted by illness, treatment and side effects. Understand that many people will have, with pancreatic cancer, will have diabetes. They will require greater surveillance than normal and greater intervention than normal. And then finally, understand that all of these people have a terminal illness, 11% survival at five years. Quality of life is the one and only priority here. So where you'd ordinarily be playing the long game, that's completely different. If they want to eat something they wouldn't ordinarily eat, think about that the one and only priority here is quality of life. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Diabetes Dialogue podcast by the National Association of Diabetes Centres. For more insights and resources, visit our website at nadc.net.au. The NADC is here to support you and your team in providing excellence in diabetes care. Until next time, keep up the dialogue on diabetes.